Okay, guys, grab your Bibles and open one last time to the book of Ruth. And we'll begin uh, reading at verse 13. You follow as I read, beginning at verse 13 to the end of the book. Ruth, chapter 4, at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amenadab. And Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. As we uh, conclude our study of the book of Ruth this morning, I have uh, two points for you. I am... My, my first point is the uh, penultimate message of the book of Ruth. My second point is the ultimate message of the book of Ruth. Now, if you're not familiar with that word penultimate, penultimate simply means the, the next to the last. You've got the, you've got the ultimate, and then you've got the penultimate, the one right next to the ultimate. It's the next to the last one. It's the, it's the penultimate message. So let's take a look at the penultimate message of the book of Ruth first. Um, Two weeks ago, when we were last in this text, I mentioned to you the word theodicy. Um, uh, The the vindication of God. Well, that, that theodicy continues. But the focus of the theodicy is not on the little newlywed couple, as in verse 13. The theodicy now, or the the focus of the story now, shifts to Naomi. Naomi is is featured in the story's final scene. Naomi is an old woman now. Um, Her first grandson has just been born. She remains a widow. Elimelech, her husband, um, her deceased husband, is not there to share in her joy. Malon, her son, one of her sons that also died, should have been the father of this son, but he too, as you know, is dead. And instead, it's Boaz who is the father of this boy. 
Boaz, a kinsman redeemer. But Boaz is not the son of, of Naomi. Naomi is a woman who, um, who's got a lot of scars. Um, life has been hard. She lost a husband. She lost two sons. She experienced a famine. I remember reading a story uh, once about Queen Elizabeth, and um, she was sitting for her official portrait. And the artist um, said to the queen, he said, don't worry, madam, I will paint you in such a way that all of those wrinkles and those lines in your face will be gone and your skin will look as fresh as, as a teenager. And she said to him, don't you dare. Don't you dare do that. Because every one of these lines, every one of these wrinkles represents a, a lesson that was learned in life the hard way. Naomi could say that. Naomi has a lot of wrinkles and lines in her face, and as her life nears its end, she, um, she's holding a grandson in her lap, in verse 16. And now, finally, Naomi is full. You remember, you do remember, don't you, back in the first chapter, when Naomi returns to Bethlehem with Ruth, and her friends greet her and say, um, Naomi, Naomi, and she says, don't call me that. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. Because I left here full, but I'm coming back empty. I left here with two sons and a husband, but I'm coming back empty. And Yahweh is the one that did that. Well, now... Uh, now she's full. Uh, she has something that these women even call better than seven sons. So why is it that Naomi is full now? Is it her grandson? No. The reason she is full now is because now Naomi understands better the ways of God towards his people. She doesn't understand it perfectly. None of us do. But she understands the ways of God to his people better. Through all that she's experienced, all of the loss of her husband, the loss of her two sons in the midst of the famine, having to uproot and move to a different country, all of that, she understands that God is working for her good even under the surface of things. You know, I said this back when we studied the book of Esther, but I, I, I pointed out again, same thing is true of the book of Ruth. There's not one miracle in the book of Ruth. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the reason that I point that out is this. If there is a miracle, then we can all say, ah, God has done that. But when there's no miracles, and what I'm facing is the loss of my two sons and my husband, when what I'm facing is that my job just expired or my health is declining, can I see him there? Oh, I can see him in the miraculous. But can I see him in the midst of all of the, the hard and the difficult and the mundane of my life? 
Naomi has come to a place where she knows that God is still at work. Still at work in her life. Even when his ways with me are inexplicable. Oh, my brother and sister in Christ, that is a lesson to be learned for all of us. To know that God in the midst of the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns of of my life is still working, still promising me good in the midst of all of that. That's the lesson that Naomi has learned. That's why she is full. And that's the lesson, ladies and gentlemen, that we've got to learn and to rest in it. That is fullness. That's what Judaism calls shalom. You know, guys, um, I I think the evangelical church has made a a serious mistake over the years. Maybe, Maybe it's just me that's made the mistake. But for years... We evangelicals have presented Christianity as little more than a way of escaping hell. Knowing Jesus, why, that that has all been reduced to a one-time decision that guarantees me this pain-free existence in, in the next life. Folks, Christianity is about going to heaven, yes, But that is not all of God's kindnesses towards us in Christ Jesus. Nor is the opportunity to lead a fulfilled, meaningful life now. You know, living according to God's word and following God's principles to make our marriages work and our kids behave and turn out well and to pack our checkbooks with enough money that we can take fancy vacations. That is not God's plan for his people. We've shrunk Christianity down into this neat little package that's full of blessings that if opened, it will empower us to feel good, good about ourselves now and even better about ourselves later. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus revealed a far different dream for his people. And it's the one that he prayed in John 17. The one I've mentioned several times over the course of this series. The one where he prayed, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Guys, the exact center of Christianity is the opportunity that it provides to enjoy God and be more satisfied with Him than with anything or anyone else. That is the heartbeat of Christianity. That it gives us an opportunity to come to the place where in the midst of all that we face, we enjoy God more than anything else or anyone else. 
And my dear brother and sister in Christ, make no mistake about it. Our emptiness is because we have not arrived there. It's not because we're not saved. And and I, I shouldn't make light of that, ladies and gentlemen. It's a wonderful thing to be saved. But the emptiness that we continue to experience is not because we do not belong to him, but it's because we have not learned what Naomi learned. We've not learned that my relationship to God gives me an opportunity to enjoy him above everything else or anyone else. Guys, Christianity is not primarily about getting saved out of hell and into heaven. It it is not primarily about living a certain way that, that creates fewer problems and makes me feel better about myself and makes my life go better. Christianity is about knowing Jesus Christ as the most wonderful person that there is. It's about knowing him as the great savior of our sin. It's about knowing him as the brother who, or the the friend that sticks closer to us than a brother. Christianity is about glorifying God and enjoying him forever. It's about enjoying him above everything else. Naomi is there. Or at least she's closer to there than we are. And thus, we continue to experience a fair measure of emptiness. Guys, what I'm saying is this. The penultimate message of this book of Ruth is how we define fullness. And and until we get that right, we're going to continue to sense a certain something's not right. Can I, can I give you Jesus' definition of fullness again? For this is eternal life. That they might know you. That brings us to the, um, the ultimate message of the book of Ruth. These women, these women that are mentioned in verse 14, um, who are they? Well, they're, they're the same women that you find in chapter 1, verse 19, when, when Naomi and Ruth were re-entering Bethlehem and, and um, they lined the streets and they're shocked with uh, Naomi's appearance and they, they ask, is, is that Naomi? 
We're, we're going to talk more about them in just a minute because very frankly, much of the instruction of this closing chapter comes through those women. But I want you to notice this. And this is pretty important in verse 14. Everything that's being said here in verse 14 through um, verse 17 is addressed to Naomi, not Ruth. Now, now Ruth is the one with the husband and the, and the baby. But all of this is addressed not to Ruth. It's addressed to Naomi. And, and, and what they're saying is, God has provided a redeemer for Naomi. A goel. You remember, that was the Hebrew word. He's provided a goel, a kinsman redeemer for Naomi. Naomi is loved and safe because the Lord has accomplished for her this, this great thing. Well, what is this great thing that the Lord has accomplished for Naomi? Gang, this community understood, and I've tried to explain it in, the, in previous sermons in this, in this series. This community understood. They, they knew that if Boaz married Ruth, and that God gave Boaz and Ruth a son, if he does, then the line of, of, of Naomi, the line of Elimelech, the line of Naomi's husband Elimelech, would be preserved. In that regard, this son that is born is born to her, born to Naomi, which is what you see in verse 16 and what is said in verse 17. Naomi has a son. Yeah. (laughs) But Ruth gave birth to him. But Naomi has a son. Any child of Ruth's will be the heir to Elimelech's land. Her son, that is Ruth's son, will be Elimelech's heir. But the big surprise, the really big surprise, comes in verse 17. Do you notice in verse 17, it's these women that name the boy. Let me tell you why that's significant. First of all, let me tell you something about naming. Tell me this. Who named your children? Hmm? Well, my, my husband and I, we named our kids. Well, of course you did. Because naming is one of those prerogatives of being a parent, which communicates that our children are in, uh, we're in authority over our children. You see it elsewhere. You see it in Genesis 2, for instance. Who named the animals? Well, Adam named the animals. Because man is going to be over the animal kingdom. It it represents an authority structure. But on a couple of three instances throughout the Bible, that prerogative is removed from the normal mother and daddy and given to someone else. For instance, who named John the Baptist? Mm, It wasn't his mother and daddy. It was an angel. Who named Jesus? Hmm. It wasn't Joseph and Mary. It was God because the only authority over Jesus is going to be God. And here, ladies and gentlemen, the normal prerogative for naming a child 
is taken out of the hands of a mother and a father. And a community of women do the honors. So why, why the women? Because ladies and gentlemen, th- this community and these women recognize... They recognize through all that it's happened, this marriage, this interracial marriage of the family, of the community leader to a Moabite. Oh, wow. And this, and, and you know, the text says, and the Lord gave her conception. They recognize through all that's going on that this young man is going to be famous in Israel. He's going to be renowned in Israel. His coming was for the benefit of the entire community. And so the community names him. And they name him Obed. Which is just a shortenized version version of Obadiah. Which is a name that means the servant of Yahweh. The servant of the Lord. Who, by the way, goes on To become the grandfather of David. David, who is called the servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord, more than 30 times. But guys, as you know, the real servant of the Lord, the real servant of Yahweh, um, was David's greatest son he's the one that's mentioned and discussed all throughout the book of isaiah but particularly in isaiah 42 i want to read you just three and a half verses verses out of isaiah 42 and and this this chapter is entitled the servant of the lord listen to what it says behold my servant whom I I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Now tell me, my friend, about whom is that being written? Well, Jesus, of course. Yes. It's, it's being written about Jesus, the son of David, the servant of the Lord, whose grandfather was Obadiah, the servant of the Lord. Guys, do you, do you see this? This is not a story about two desperate widows whose family is on the brink of extinction. It's about a desperate nation on the brink of extinction. Do you remember how the book opened? Do you remember in chapter 1 verse 1 and it says, and in in this story occurred during the days when the judges ruled. Remember I made a big point out of when those days were, the judges ruling, that's back when there was moral anarchy and moral chaos. It was when everybody did what was right in his own eyes. 
And the first name that appears in the book is the name of Elimelech, a name which means my God is king. And and before two verses have expired, my God is king, he's dead. And the message for us, ladies and gentlemen, is that Israel is on the brink. This is not a story about how badly Naomi needs a redeemer. It's a story about how badly Israel needs a redeemer. Ruth and Naomi are are merely bit players in a redemptive drama of redemption. God uses a Moabite, the natural enemy of Israel. He uses a Moabite woman to communicate to Israel of her need for a redeemer. Ruth's son merely points us to the one who will come later. And it is he who will be the servant of Yahweh. Ladies and gentlemen, this story is yelling at us about the servant of the Lord. And one of the ways that it does it is that the last word in the book is the word David. And with that name comes the scent of a a, a faint hope that Israel still has. Guys, Ruth Ruth had left her country, her her home, her father, and she had given her life for Naomi. But the servant of the Lord, he left his home, he left his country, he left his father, and he gave his life for the world. And he arrived as the son of of a virgin in a manger a story that is far more remarkable far more unpredicted far more unexpected than the one about a Moabite woman you see God comes through mangers not thrones. You know, guys, if you're a lover of the Lord of the Rings, Tolkien's lover of the rings like I am, you might remember this story, but early on in the trilogy, um, um, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee have, have just left the Shire. And uh, it's about day two or day three, I forget, but um, they've just left the Shire and, and they have spent this night running from the ring wraiths. It's kind of hard to 
hard to say, it's ring wraiths, these spooky, headless horses thing, you know. And they've hidden all night from the ring wraiths, and they, and they come upon the little city of Bree. And they go into a pub, and the name of the pub is the Prancing Pony. Remember that? The pony, the Prancing Pony pub? And because they're hobbits, they're smaller than everybody else in the room. And these big men that are, you know, drinking heavily and raucous in their behavior. And there's a lot of roughhousing going on. And people are flying across the room. And, and, and they're scared of everything. And they find themselves a little, little table in the back. And there, across the room, by himself, is this scruffy-looking man. And his name is Strider. But his real name is Aragorn. The son of Aragorn. The, 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 the revered king. Aragorn. Who will one day soon become the, the most high king of the reunited kingdom. There he sits. Absolute royalty. And he showed up in a pub. When the Redeemer, the servant of Yahweh, shows up, he shows up in Bethlehem, the hometown of of Elimelech. He shows up in a manger. He shows up in a manger born of a virgin. Oh my gosh, ladies and gentlemen, what kind of story is this? It's the gospel story, ladies and gentlemen. And only a God like this one could come up with a story this magnificent. The story of Ruth, the book closes with a genealogy. It's verse 18 uh, through 21, through 22. Um, and you notice that the last name in that genealogy is, is David's, Israel's greatest king. The last word one reads, if you read the book of Ruth, is David. And with it, hope begins to rise. This same genealogy that you read in the book of Ruth reappears. You do know that. It reappears in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1. In fact, Matthew opens his gospel by giving you that genealogy. But Matthew doesn't stop with David. Matthew stops with the name of David's greatest son, Jesus, who Mark tells us came not to be served. He came to serve 
David's greatest son, Jesus, came. He came to be the servant of Yahweh. And this book of Ruth takes its collective finger and points us to him. Interestingly, in this genealogy in Matthew 1, there are... um, There are women's names found in it, which is highly irregular, very unusual, because a a genealogy in ancient Israel, ladies and gentlemen, was more of a resume. It was a who's your daddy kind of thing. And women normally were not included in genealogies. But in this one, the one in Matthew 1, we get the names of four women. And remarkably, three of those four women are all Gentiles. Matthew leaves out the stars of Israel's uh, history. Leaves out the name of Eve or, or Rebecca or Sarah. And then he gives us the names of four women, all of whom have a sexual cloud over their heads. There's Tamar in there. Tamar, who dressed up like a prostitute and went out and seduced her father-in-law, Judah. And then there was Rahab. She didn't dress up like a prostitute. She was a prostitute. And she was Boaz's mother. And both of those women are Canaanites. And then there was Ruth, a Moabite. She didn't dress up like a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. She just acted like a prostitute on the threshing floor at midnight in chapter 3. And then for good measure, Matthew throws in Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. What a mess! Until the genealogy closes by telling us of David's greatest son. You know, Ruth is a Moabite, and she did what Abraham did. Abraham, you know, remember, left his family and moved to a strange country, and, and God gave him a son. Well, Ruth left her family and moved to a strange country, and God gave Ruth a son, too. And then God gave us a son, his son, who goes on to become the servant 
of Yahweh. The suffering servant of Yahweh. So you want to know the ultimate message of the book of Ruth? Here it is. God reigns and God saves. God never forgets his saving purposes. And my dear brother and sister in Christ, through all the ups and downs of your life, all the good news and the bad news, all of the, the heartache and the sorrow, He's in that too. And none of it will stop him from the saving of his people. Oh, my friend, are you one of them? Are you one of his people? bought with the price of Christ's shed blood? If not, it is you who is on the brink of extinction. And you will know nothing but emptiness both now and for an eternity. As a representative of the servant of Yahweh, I plead with you. Come to Christ. Oh God, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the beauty, the symmetry, the, um, the excellence, the truth, the, the absoluteness of its message. And Father, forgive us that we have, that we have neglected it and we have gone our own way thinking we knew how to operate our lives we have forgotten that you have warned us over and over and over and over again that you will not be mocked that what you ask of your people is that we obey you and so oh God would you grant us grace to do that very thing we want to leave here today and return to our places of work tomorrow to reflect your glory by being obedient. And Father, if you have not brought others to yourself who are in this room, who are not yet embracing Jesus Christ and him alone, would you open their eyes to see 
the extinction that is awaiting them. And then turn them to see the great beauty of Christ and Him crucified. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake.